Welcome to my brand new podcast, The Heart Speaks. This is going to be really fun. The Heart Speaks will be a curation of interviews with brilliant philosophers, artists, writers, and academics who have made a profound impact in the world around us. You're going to be able to discover great insights from the world of art, creativity, philosophy, and culture with amazing perspectives from the world's sharpest minds. Now, for this first episode, I sit down with Scott Barry Kaufman, a humanist psychologist and author of the book Transcend, The Science of Self-Actualization. In this episode, we discuss what each of us as human beings need in life to operate from what Scott calls the being mode. This is a higher mode where we feel free and unburdened by our anxieties and insecurities. It's a kind of existence where we're not projecting those insecurities onto others, but operating from a place of openness and curiosity. We also talk about the challenge of psychological entropy that affects us all and What happens when we as human beings act from a place of deficiency and a place of scarcity? Scott gives us some tools we can use to overcome those states when we find ourselves falling into despair. Now, because this episode is one of our earlier episodes, there may be a few odd places where the quality isn't the best, but it's still an incredible episode and I encourage you to watch share with all your friends, and enjoy. All right, that's all for me. For now, enjoy the episode. All right, let's do this. How are you? Jump right in. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. How have you been these days? What's the last year been like for you? (laughs) Um, I'm, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I'm trying to make uh, lemons out of lemonade and, uh, and it's good. It's good. I started my own center. Um, uh, it's called the wow. center for the science of human potential and I'm doing like coaching certification program, self-actualization coaching program and classes. Wow. And yeah, I'm just kind of, uh, creating my life in a way that I didn't expect. I quit my job at Columbia for now. So. Nice. <laughs> it's actually nice not being in academia. It's actually nice. Yeah. How have you been? Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's a big, a big excitement. How have you been? How have you been? I've been good. You know, I've been building theory of enchantment. I've seen. And um, it's crazy how many iterations and permutations that whole thing has has manifested mm. and emerged and and it's still going. Um, so I'm excited to bring that, you know, as a relational practice to as many organizations as possible. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this new podcast yeah. called The Heart Speaks can can be in service of that as well. So I've been good. I've been just enjoying the ride, you know. Well, huge congrats, yeah, to the podcast and as well as your company. Yeah, it's really exciting. Thank you. I, I'm curious, what's it like to create a uh, certification process. What what is that entire experience like? Are we officially be like starting the interview? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just 
going with it. Going with the flow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so this is being recorded. <laughs> like this is this is live. <laughs> Not live, but yeah, this is live. It's We're hot. Live. It's hot. <laughs> it's hot. Um, Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'm really excited about this uh, self-actualization coaching certification program uh, because there are lots of different kinds of coaching programs out there, you know, and there's like executive coaching and there's um, personal coaching and leadership coaching and mindset coaching. It feels like everyone has their own coaching practice these days. <laughs> so why not me? <laughs> no, but um, I, I felt like um, <laughs> no, that's not the, re- the main reason why, um, why I started this, but I started this because I did see um, a gap in the coaching literature. Um, and uh, so I want to create a kind of coaching called self-actualization coaching, which is specifically um, uh, tied to humanistic psychology and um, and brings in positive psychology as well. But it's really about helping people create and design a life that works best for them um, and being able to really look into their strengths using the tools of science and looking into their, um, you know, like their character, not only their character strengths, but their talents and their forms of creativity and with zero judgment uh, from the mm-hmm. coach, zero, you know, very like Carl Rogers, unconditional positive yeah. regard, um, work with a client to design a life that works for them and with no apology, with no apology. So this this is, uh, is something we're, we're building up. I have a team of uh, coaches uh, that uh, have a lot of experience in the coaching world, but really want to work with me to adapt this to this kind of self-actualization coaching format. Mm-hmm. And is that kind of the model, one of the characteristics of humanistic psychology? Like, how would you define humanistic psychology? Yeah, I see humanistic psychology as as an interest in the psychology of the whole person um, and how uh, a human with so many competing parts that through the course of human evolution, this is just how we evolved like we we can't help it no one's above this anyone who claims i'm above it is yeah. lying to you is damn lying um you know either and, they're lying or they're like the buddha both of which are no that's true you know that's a good point i don't think the buddha or, or like yeah like i don't know how much the dalai lama um uh lies i, I think he doesn't probably doesn't lie about it, yeah. about his saintly, saintliness but i but i would imagine that he has some of the very same impulses that the rest of us have, mm. what he has reached is a yeah. high, high level of integration. And so humanistic mm. psychology is interested in the integration. Um, so you can feel like comfortable in your own skin, that you have a, you feel alive, you feel vital. You feel like you're a whole harmonious, self-actualized human that's operating at your full capacity. Mm. And, and, and how was that distinctive from some of the other forms of psychology that are out there. Are there other forms that just don't focus on the full human, the focus on parts? Is, is oh, that for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the field of psychology is quite fabricated, actually. Um, you know, like cognitive neuroscientists will pick their favorite brain area that they'll spend their entire dissertation mm-hmm. studying. You know, I, like I'm the yeah. BA10 guy, <laughs> you know, the BA10, that's the metacognitive area, uh, you know, but or someone's like the visual uh, cortex, occipital lobe, and that's what they focus on. And even in developmental psychology, they'll focus on specific ages and you can go down the line, you know, and mm-hmm. look at different fields. And it seems to, you know, clinical psychology, people pick their own specialization and um, even positive psychology, which uh, is the one closest linked to humanistic, I would say, positive psychology tends to focus on um, a still, I would argue, a specific slice of humans, like life satisfaction, or or uh, or even well-being, or um, uh, or even meaning. Even if you pick meaning, that's still one slice of yourself. You know, I'm really interested yeah. in 
in, I'm interested in the dark side too, you know, like I study that, you know, I study, I created this Star Wars test on my website that anyone can take and it'll say where you are on the force, you know, by look, by assessing, you know, <laughs> multiple aspects of you. <laughs> That's cool. I, I want to take that. Star Wars is one of my favorite uh, series. So oh, cool. I, I Me too. <laughs> How do you feel? You said you wanted to explore the, the darkness also. How do you feel about Carl Jung? How does he, does he have any, um, meaning or presence in your life as a humanist psychologist? Because I'm deeply moved and inspired by his work, but I'd be curious to get your take on him. Yeah, I, I am deeply moved and inspired by his work as well. Uh, I find uh, he was a much needed uh, corrective to Freud, um, added mm-hmm. the spiritual dimension, which was completely yeah. lacking in Freud. Come on, Freud didn't seem to have a spiritual bone in his body. Maybe he did personally, but interestingly in his theories... Yeah. In his theories, he reduced everything to destructive or um, sexual impulses for most mm-hmm. of his life. Towards the end of his life, he kind of saw, as everyone does, <laughs> as they get older, they get yeah. more spiritual. It's just like everyone, that's, that happens to everyone. But yeah, but Carl Jung um, really was an important corrective. And I would say it's still relevant today in bringing the intuitive dimension. Um, uh, that, that's what I particularly liked about his work was bringing the experiential dimension to the table. And he had something called depth psychology, which um, I think we need to bring back as well. Um, depth psychology is very um, uh, a good bed- bedfellow with a humanistic psychology because we want to really go deeper than the surface level of a human. You know, we want to go to the deepest level possible to really um, understand the, the, full, um, the full nature of a human. Mm. So this is interesting. So I've started recently becoming um, a fan of Taoist philosophy. Oh, nice. And I, I follow the work of John Verveke, a cognitive scientist out of the University of Toronto, who's done a lot of meditation practices and things like that. Um, and combining the two, one of the things that I've come to, I guess, realize or believe is in this idea of the inexhaustibility of the human being, mm. um, this idea in Taoism, which which says that you can't ever get to, you can't ever pin a human being down, you can't ever fully, um, you know, figure out the the ground uh, or or the the actual totality of a human being because it's always inexhaustible. It's always the next level and the next level and the next level. And I think this speaks to your whole idea of transcendence, which I want to talk about. Um, But I'm curious to get your take. Like, how does, does that play a role in the way you approach psychology at all? Um, Which, which aspect in particular, the sort of contemplative meditative aspect? Well, where you said that you you're interested in, in getting the fullness, getting Mm -hmm. to the fullness of the human being. I guess my question is, is it actually po- even possible to ever get to the fullness of the human being if you believe that we're inexhaustible ultimately? That's a really interesting question. So what would it mean? What does it mean practically to be inexhaustible? Like, yeah, so we'll never, there, there's never any uh, complete self, same with self-actualization. No one ever is 100% mm. self-actualized. I would argue yeah. that self-actualization is not a destination, but a direction. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, same thing with depth psychology. We can grow in the direction that we most want to grow and we can keep plumbing the depths. But yeah, we will never, it is inexhaustible. Yeah, we never will 
fully understand ourselves. I, I've given up the project of fully understanding myself. I mean, I still yeah. four or five times a day do something. I'm like, why the fuck did I just do that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, Same. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I give up that project, but to the extent which we can intentionally use our consciousness to error correct and, and uh, make choices. Um, I think there is a kind of free will worth wanting, so to speak. We don't need to get into that whole debate, but there is, <laughs> there is, there's a little wiggle room I'm there. I'm not qualified to yeah, get into yeah, that yeah. debate. Anyway. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but I think, I do believe that there's uh, a certain, to a certain extent, um, we can make intentional choices that can direct us in the, can move us in the direction of the growth that we most, you know, the whole organism wants, not just one part of us. Yeah. Very beautiful. I love that. I love that approach because it's, it's not disjointed, right? It's not like a dichotomous approach. It's the, a holistic mm-hmm. approach. Yeah. I want to dive into talking a bit more about your book, Transcend. Um, I've read it a few years ago. I re-skimmed it for the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> awesome. um, and I also, I also uh, reference it from time to time when I'm speaking to people about mm-hmm. this holistic approach to understanding human beings. You talk about um, how human beings can, can act out of scarcity. Um, and when we act out of scarcity, I think you say Maslow, Abraham Maslow called it deficiency needs or, or D needs. And we're acting out of a place of um, uh, scarcity and zero sum ways of thinking. My question for you, and I don't know if, if this is a thing yet that has yet to be discovered, um, but maybe it is. My question is, what advice or what set of practices would you give to someone who is experiencing a scarcity uh, latent context live? Like, what are the tools that they can actually enact immediately in that moment to sort of get themselves out of that scarcity mindset? So I'll just give you a quick mm-hmm. example. Um, I volunteer at an organization called Children of Promise mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Um, Children of Promise is an organization that mentors kids whose parents are incarcerated Mm -hmm. so imagine if you're a young kid and you're growing up without your mother or your father in the home you're thinking to yourself that it's your fault right Mm -hmm. like you're you're thinking to yourself that like why did my parent leave me because you're young and you're impressionable and you don't know any better so what's something that what's like a mindset or a way of getting into another mindset that that young kid or any person in this similar kind of situation can like switch to immediately or is there are there a set of practices that a person can sort of embody um to like help help get them out of that way of thinking well it's a good question um there's a uh um an emotion i'm trying to i'm trying to look up what the name of it name of it is uh yeah it's called kama muta have you heard of kama muta k-a-m-a-m-u-t-a i've been obsessed with this recently Okay. <laughs> it's yeah, uh, even though I couldn't remember the name of it. Um, it's it's the sudden feeling of oneness with others. That's what it means. Mm. And I've been really psychologically trying to look at interventions to um, to move the dial on that, and um, well, other researchers have as well. And linking it to a topic I'm very become interested in recently, which is group narcissism. Something I'm really interested in, um, and how we can lower group narcissism by increasing this um, emotion. And this is an emotion that we can snap into at any moment, I believe. Um, it's a matter of shifting our frame of mind, um, shifting how we, um, like when we're in the presence of someone else, um, m- moving from that sort of um, uh, 
division between us, like identities dividing us or skin colors dividing us or a million things that can divide us and shifting from that mindset into, uh, into a common humanity mindset. Um, and, and if you can shift in that mindset, there's this feeling that can happen with a person where you feel a sudden sense of, uh, of oneness with, with the person. And, and it, and it has certain physiological manifestations, which are so interesting. And I'm sure you've experienced this, Mm -hmm. um, uh, many times in your life where you almost feel tearful. You feel, um, like your heart feels really open. Um, you feel there's like, you know, psychologists have identified, there's a whole like list of things that seem to come right and it can happen suddenly. So I thought of this because you asked me, or is there something you can do live on the spot? You know, how can we cultivate more of this particular kind of emotion in daily interactions? That'd be huge. That'd be huge. Um, some, (laughs) some interventions people have been trying have, have been unsurprisingly mindfulness. So a 10 minute, um, mindfulness exercise where you, um, you, 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 you practice a sense of existential gratitude or, um, mm. just being, you know, happy or alive, you know, and you, that you're, and that you're human and that you're, you, you have the, you, just having gratitude for just being able to talk to other people, other humans, you know, when you're dead, you're not going to have that opportunity. So why would you waste yeah. your whole life fighting with people <laughs> when yeah. you've been given a special gift? Of, uh, of of being able to actually have this oneness feeling with others. Why waste time on this earth when you can have that, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I do wonder, though, bringing into sort of the developmental psychology that you mentioned earlier, how it's like based upon different ages, right? Like at what age do you sort of start to have the capacity to do these things? I feel like, and I'm especially interested in, in the youth because they are our future, obviously. Um, like when you're when you're young and you're not even necessarily riddled or engaged by like you know social media um culture wars and things of that nature but like you're dealing with intimate family oriented problems Mm. um and you don't know what you don't know right so if you haven't had exposure to um a lot of the things that you're talking about if you you know there's this great scene in um, the equalizer too, where Denzel Washington is mentoring this young kid who is susceptible to joining a gang. And basically what he tells him is you have no idea what death is, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's sort of being, this kid is being very reckless with his life, but he's being reckless because he actually doesn't know. Like he doesn't, he can't fully comprehend. And I'm sure adults can't either, but obviously like th- there are different moments in your life when you can, conceptualize things in a more profound way that's true do you think it's harder for young people for like teenagers for example to tap into some of these things just because their brains aren't fully developed they may not have been exposed you know what kind of advice would you offer young people yeah i mean and this is we're both interested in education and self-actualizing students this is a similar we're on a lot of similar frequencies. Yeah, yeah. So that that's for sure. And I think part of the problem, and I, I don't think it, um, youth can't have it, but the barrier to it in youth tends to be that, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of put the, put it this way. Uh, the more that one develops a comfort in their own skin, um, the more they tend to focus on self-actualization um, aspects mm. of their life, the more, and I feel like when you're a kid, you feel awkward, especially a teenager, you know, you feel awkward, clunky. You don't know your place in the world yet. You, 
um, you're struggling to find an identity that that fits you, you know, and you may try many things, you know, that then later on in your life, you regret, <laughs> you know, you regret that you tried yeah. that one on, you know, and you're like, oh my God, I won't talk. I don't want to tell anyone about that identity. I tried on, you know, <laughs> yeah, but you feel embarrassed yeah, yeah, I mean, I know, I know I certainly did. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to talk to, to young people, inspire them, you know, I really, or even coach them, coach them. And I think these kids need to be coached. And that's why I really love the Future Project, this organization I work with, where they have mm. where each young person is paired with a, their own personal coach, you know, that's called a future coach mm-hmm. to help them realize their that's future. Beautiful. Yeah. Have you heard of the Future Project? Have you heard of that group? I haven't. I mean, I've heard of future authoring, but that's mm. like an exercise that I know Jordan Peterson created, but I'm oh, not yeah. familiar that's with That's different. It's very different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the yeah the future project is really this um, awesome organization where they pair uh, they have like the, a future coach in in every school uh, the office of the dream director and any student can go mm. into the office of the dream director and talk about their dreams goals desires I think the more that we can get students um, really getting in touch with their future self not their current self see the more that teenagers are in touch yeah. with their current self the more awkward they're going to feel <laughs> the more oh yeah you, that's true you know the more sort of um, clunky and uh, insecure, um, and you know, to get out of this kind of insecurity trap, to get out of it, um, it, it's really a matter of getting in touch with your own unique, real felt values and dreams and desires and talents, um, and projects, getting them involved in creative projects, getting them in the, in the flow state, the more you can get students in the flow state, the more that there are all these other trivial, trivial concerns tend to disappear, the more comfortable they tend to be in their own skin, the more they get into the being realm of human existence, which I uh, and Maslow contrasted from the deficiency realm. So deficiency mm-hmm. realm, you're not really it, pure being, you know, but if you can get into a, a pure being realm, um, that's uh, well, that's what we all really want at the end of the day, even if we don't know it. <laughs> Are you, do you think that there's some elements of our society that don't encourage us to get into the being realm oh yeah and and like what are the because i feel like we're conditioned to not strive for that being realm that you described no well who's we who's we (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question (laughs) who's in charge here who's in charge of the world god god generalize here no i mean like the culture the yeah. culture american let's culture say western culture okay yeah let's say american culture specifically yeah well i think that there are just so many subcultures it, it so much of it depends well what subcultures do you spend most of your time where are you working all day you know mm-hmm. um i think it's very easy to generalize and think that like twitter is real life you know that like uh, yeah. everyone who's concerned about certain issues on your Twitter feed, when you step outside your apartment, everyone on the street is going to care about the same things, you know? Um, I think yeah. it, it, we can get kind of, um, stuck in that way. So I think one part, another part of the, out of this trap in the rule is, rec- is, is recognizing that, um, I think a lot more people, um, are living in the being realm in their daily life than we realize or even give it credit. Okay. I think it's, very easy to 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 uh just generalize and say you know american culture we're all in this deficiency um realm but you know even when you look you go into what really poor neighborhoods those you you know that where they're environmentally deficient in 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 really meaningful ways you can find pockets of real sense of community 
you can find pockets mm-hmm. of real, um, you know, uh, loyalty and, and brotherly love, especially in Philadelphia, <laughs> where I'm from. <laughs> but, okay. yeah, yeah, no. So I, I, I do think that um, uh, it's, it's just important to recognize that, um, yes, there are lots of forces that are pulling us into the deficiency realm all over the place. But I think to a certain extent, we can design our life and our focus um, to be and surround um, uh, environments and people that get us more in the being realm. I mean, Matt, Maslow had a whole list of exercises. He called them be exercises, exercises mm-hmm. to get you into being. And it's in my book, Transcend. I could could pull it out, but there's like, you know, all these exercises to intentionally, you know, like get out into nature more, you know, like, you know, there, there are things that you can do, you know, like approach a, a fellow human with just curiosity, with no preconception, you know, that immediately will snap you in the being realm, you know, you're, yeah. you're out, you're out of the deficiency realm when you're doing that, right? So, For sure. yeah, there, there, there are lots of things we can do to arrange our lives in a way that gets us more regularly in the being realm. So I have two questions about the being realm, as you've described it just now. Mm. The first is, given that what you're doing is very much tailored to every person and given the inexhaustibleness of every person, that makes sense. Do you think it's scalable? And I ask that because I feel like we need it to be scalable. (laughs) (laughs) Desperately. To make that evolutionarily leap. Desperately. Um, as a society. Uh, so is it scalable, number one? And what are some ideas you have on that? And number two, um, <clears throat> what is the role that community plays in sustaining that being mode? Because, you know, I could definitely, I know for myself personally, right, that like I I can be walking down the street in New York City and not feeling good about myself and then projecting my bad insecure or my insecurities onto other people. And so that will make me less likely to go up to a person and engage them out of curiosity. But if I was in a community, in a community of practice where everyone was challenging themselves to do that, yeah. I would feel far more motivated to go out there and support it, quite frankly. So what is the role that community plays in maintaining the being mode? And, and how can we scale this new way of living? Yeah, I'm going to tackle the easier one first, the second one. Uh, community yeah. is essential and your, your immediate environment, there's actually three different meanings of the word meaning uh, in the psychological okay. literature. Um, one is kind of this purpose kind of meaning, like I have this grandiose, grandiose purpose. Another one is, is coherence, which is just in my immediate environment, do things make sense? Um, do I feel safe? Um, is there some predictability? Do I know when I'm getting my next meal? You know, uh, and and there's something called psychological entropy that we can get enter the state of psychological entropy when there's too much unknowns in our immediate environment. We feel unsafe. And when we're pitched mm-hmm. into that state, our mind has a very specific color. Well, the world has a specific color to it. Um, I, I liken it to uh, um, uh, the experience, the feeling I felt, uh, quite frankly, uh, back in my 20s when I used to go to dance clubs. And, mm-hmm. and do, do you know the feeling where you, where you like, if you approach someone, you find cute, whatever, and they reject you suddenly, yeah. <laughs> suddenly the whole room has a certain color to it where you don't feel safe. <laughs> you don't feel like it's a friendly environment. You don't feel, you feel like a loser. It, you get pitched yeah. into this complete state of like the whole world is colored by it now. And, and, and what that does is that creates a feedback loop that it makes it more likely 
that the next person you approach is going to be even more likely to reject you because you, you're coming across as weird. The way you come, you hold yourself, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is like impacted by it. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah, that's wild. So, so that's just my like real concrete, you know, example. But, but you know, they they've done studies where they um uh, they brought a set of researchers into a poor neighborhood that particularly people neighbor didn't have trust for each other. And trust is a huge one here. Mm. And they had uh, researchers only there for 15 minutes and they had a, a van where they could bail at any time if they wanted to get out of the neighborhood. <laughs> and the researchers oh, wow. went door to door, um, kind of putting up, asking if they could put up flyers. And they found among the, the researchers um, that even though they didn't live in these neighborhoods, even 15 minutes in these neighborhoods showed a plummeting of their trust in the world more generally um, and as well in the environment than, than measured pretest than when they came in. Right. So can you imagine what it's like living day after day? I mean, if, if just 15 minutes can alter your view, uh, your worldview that much, can you imagine day after day? So there are some real um, there. I mean, dare I say, you know, there are some real systemic changes that need to be made, right? You can't, mm-hmm. um, in, in, a, in tackling this issue that we're talking about right now, you can't just completely ignore, you know, more, um, systematic, large, cha- large-scale environmental changes that that make yeah. people feel a uh, sense of trust, make them feel like um, you know safe, right? Mm-hmm. So that's super, super important. But I do think there are certain things, mindset changes as well. I know both both me and you really um, uh, believe in the power of the mind. You know, uh, to put yeah. it, to put it, you know, uh, I don't know, put it cornally, maybe. Look at your background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that uh you all, you also can train your mind in, in various ways. Um but when you when your environment keeps just bumping up against unsafe unsafe and safe it can it at a certain point you you do get pitched into the state of psychological entropy which has a very uh, very distinct brain signature. Very interesting. Psychological entropy. I will try to remember that that yeah. phrase. Yeah. Um and and any thought? I have a question about that. I'll I'll go back to it. But any thoughts about the challenge of scale, given the magnitude of everything that you just described? Um, yeah, yeah. The the scalability question you asked me is that's like a really tough one for me to uh, answer pithily. You know, because yeah. <laughs> well, for for a number of reasons. One is, I I, I think it's important for one to be. Uh, have humility of uh, having humility means just knowing your strengths and weaknesses. I'm not a policy person like that. I'm a psychologist, you know, um, I think to address some of these issues that are to scalable, I do think they're scalable. Uh, but I think that requires a real serious policy policy discussion, um, that, that we have to start bringing in distribution of economic resources. We have to bring in discussion. We have to bring in all sorts of things that I am not an expert in. And I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to claim that I am an expert in. Um, but I do think yeah. there are, uh, I could, at least if I sat down at the table with these policy people, I could outline to them the conditions where people flourish. I could outline, sure. I could outline to people environments where, um, that are most conducive to self-actualization. I am very interested in, in what does a self-actualizing society look like? Um, and mm. I can psychologically tell you the elements, but the, the extent to which it is practically scalable is going to have, at the end of the day, you can't get around. It. It's going to come down to politics. It's going to come down to um, policy. Oof. I know. And, and I don't like that <laughs> shit. <laughs> I don't like that shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
on the one hand, it's like, whoa, that's again, the magnitude. But on the other hand, it's like, whoa, like what an incredible project that requires all of us <laughs> to, you know, devote ourselves. Like that's an, that's an awesome moonshot project to work on. You know, it's like yes. the moonshot project. Yes. I'm also really interested in community actualization, not just self-actualization, but community actualization. Mm-hmm. And that there are things that communities, even without the role of the government or without the role of, of policymakers to sort out and get their shit together, there are things that people mm-hmm. in communities can decide that there is part of their culture. You know, um, yeah. we've had uh, lots of break-ins recently in our, where I'm living right now. I've had my, but my electric oh, wow. bike stolen twice in the last two weeks, but everyone in the community, we've all like banded together to like fight crime. <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm in like the <laughs> ghetto over here, but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, we've still, the community has decided we're going to all, ha- all have each other's backs. And, you know, you feel a sense of safety when, when like everyone kind of comes together and like signals to each other, look, we ha- all have each other's backs and we don't stand for this crime in this area, you know? Um, so I think for there sure. are things that you, you can do as a community to actualize that you don't have to wait for. I mean, I, I don't recommend waiting for politicians to get, <laughs> to get their shit in order <laughs> before you change, yeah. change your community. And speaking of which, uh, what what would you say? Like, talk about psychological entropy on a on a personal level, on an individual level. Um, let's look to let's turn to social media. <laughs> let's turn to <laughs> platforms like Twitter, um, which I have a love hate relationship mm-hmm. with. Um, what where are where are you seeing psychological entropy on platforms such as such as these, and and how can we sort of self regulate, community regulate, so that we don't fall into that? Yeah. It's, 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 those are two questions. Um, as you know, um, it's too easy <laughs> to, if, to, uh, on, we make it too easy on social media to respond impulsively and knee jerk. And, uh, and also there's reward structures to, to respond knee jerk. I can say unequivocally, unequivocally that <laughs> whatever the word is, that. Uh, or is it equivocally? I don't know. Whatever, whatever that word is, I can say for sure that when I give my hot take on something, you know, like, uh, oh, these woke are annoying. I get a million likes, right? But if I'm just like, on the one hand, I think that <laughs> we should have compassion for all humans. But on the other hand, we must not allow people from our in-group to have moral transgressions, even if we people like four or five likes, right? So it's like, yeah, there's a reward. There's not a reward structure for thoughtfulness, for nuance, for integration, for, you know, for the things that we, that the society desperately needs right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that is, that is a, a significant problem. But your second question, you know, what can we do to change the culture? Well, that's not exactly how you phrase it, but I'm going to reframe it a little bit. You know, I think we there there are things we can do to to uh, to police it a little more. Uh, not police. I don't even like that word police, but um, <laughs> but to correct. to correct. to change. Yeah. Can I just say change the culture? Sure. And I try. And I you you're out there doing that every day yourself. You know, Coley, I yeah. see you. I see you. I see you. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> but I try. Like I'll say things like uh I tweeted something yesterday. I was like, we we need to not be afraid of telling the truth, but in equal measure, we need to not be afraid of showing love. These two are not at odds with each other. Now, that's the kind of culture that I want to see. So I think be 
the person, be the culture that you want it to be, you know, and just keep doing it consistently. And some days you'll get no one paying attention. And some days you might, you might get a lot of attention, Um, but you can't do it for the attention, you know, day and you just have to live your values but you can't do it for for the likes. You can't. There, there are a lot of people that's they're on Twitter and they say whatever they know will get a lot of likes, and um, that's not yeah. that's the deficiency that's the deficiency motivation, right? Right? Because yeah. you're only speaking because of the possibility that you get rewarded with likes. That's not a, the best, healthiest way reason for speaking. Yeah, I think I think one of the challenges is that people probably can recognize when they're experiencing material entropy. So like, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty and, you know, but it's harder for people, I imagine, to re- recognize when they're experiencing psychological entropy as in, oh, I'm actually just doing this because I want likes. Mm. To be able to pause and stop and confront yourself with that kind of radical honesty mm. is something that I've struggled with that I'm sure others have struggled with. So I, I think that's one of the challenges. It's like, the psychological spiritual dimension it's difficult to to uh sense and to intuit when you're in it and when you are being rewarded for it it's a kind of you know um a reward that turns against itself but it may be hard for a person who has a million followers to actually recognize that something is off here you know yeah you're i love what you're saying here's one just a tip don't don't tweet when you're in certain moods. Simple, simple mm. as that. I can tell you that when I'm in, yeah. when I'm feeling, I get in moods sometimes where I feel so insecure and like I, like I just want to go on Twitter and tweet something so that I'll feel better about myself because people will like what I say. But I can say that in in most of the cases when I've done that, what I've had to say, I regret what I said. Like the next day, mm. it's not coming from my real self. Yeah. Oh, or I don't know whoever. I mean, it's it's coming from your maybe your higher self. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Because there's no real self. I and I, I should yeah. I should be clear. <laughs> it's all you. It's all you. But yeah. um, and you need to take responsibility for the whole of you. But um, I do think that it's not not the best best self. It's not the best. It's not the side of me that I'm most proud of. Then when I look at that tweet mm-hmm. the next day, the tweets that I've been most proud of really were the ones that that came from a mood and a sort of mental state that I'm in that is not driven by deficiency. And I can just say that yeah. clear. I can see that so clearly. Do you see that as well? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't actually, I haven't tried practicing tweeting when I'm in a certain mood. Mm. I do take two breaks off Twitter. So I will Smart. just be not on Twitter. For and people will be like, where? <laughs> oh, I, and when I come back, people are like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. And I'm like, yeah, that's because I take two weeks off. And I find, I actually find just the entire, um, I don't know, process or mechanism of checking Twitter, seeing what people like, seeing what people retweet. That is a, um, um, it reminds me of 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 the the same process that creates addiction, quite frankly, um, because yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. oh reciprocal reciprocal narrowing. I think that's what it's called in mm-hmm. in some of the psychological literature mm-hmm. that I've seen, where when you're in a specific context, you um, there's a study that was done that found that people who are in the Vietnam War were addicted to opioid, I think it was. Um, And they found that once many of those soldiers came back from Vietnam, they were, and put into a different context, they 
they immediate, almost immediately like got rid of their addiction. Like they were no longer addicted anymore. And so I find that Twitter can be this kind of environment that just turns on things in my brain Mm. that are not necessarily healthy. Mm. Um, And when I'm not on Twitter for those two weeks, I'm telling you, Scott, it feels totally like the air has cleared. And obviously I want to have some relationship with it, with the platform, you know, but in moderation, because I have noticed that there's like a fog that dissipates when I'm not on Twitter for those two weeks. Even if I just go uh, weekend, I've been starting to have no email on weekends, like no oh, check. Not, I mean, I wish I had no email on weekends. I mean, I don't yeah. check email <laughs> on weekends. Yeah, there's yeah, a difference. Yeah, yeah. I wish you could just like, you know, cut off the stream, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So if I go a whole weekend without, and I've been doing this uh, recently, yeah, I enjoy my weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah. I'm not used to that feeling yeah. where I'm like enjoying my weekend. <laughs> <laughs> what a novel idea, you know. I will say, because I grew up observing Shabbat in some format, mm. I don't, I typically don't work. I don't do work from Friday night to Saturday night. So I don't check emails from Friday night to Saturday night. I will check emails on Saturday night and Sunday. Maybe I should ex- extend to include the full weekend. And I also... <laughs> I'm not there yet. <clears throat> I'm working on it. But I also mm-hmm. want to make it so that I'm not checking um, Twitter or Instagram from Friday night to Saturday night. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I give myself an entertainment pass, okay. but that's just me bullshitting myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to get to the place where I'm not, I'm not like on those platforms, uh, at least for, the, for those 24 hours. I love that. I, I must comment. I think you're more Jewish than I am, Chloe. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, a quotable you're, quote. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're doing the Shabbat thing with the emails, you know. That's, that's big, true. Big, Fasting. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I want to explore uh, sort of switching gears. I, I came across a quote in your book um, about loneliness. And obviously loneliness um, can play a role in the psychological. Um, what's, the, what's the phrase again? Psychological. Entropy. 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 Yeah, that's a, that's a great phrase. Mm. Um, so you point out in your book that it's a health epidemic mm. and it can lead to things like heart disease and diabetes and um, and also can be as deadly as obesity. Mm. But it strikes me that all of those diseases <clears throat> are comorbidities for COVID-19. Mm. So for COVID, if you have diabetes or heart disease, or you suffer from obesity, you're more likely to suffer from COVID, especially if you're not vaccinated, mm-hmm. if you have those preconditions. And yet at the same time, we had to physically separate ourselves, physically disconnect from our loved ones. So this is like a double bind <laughs> in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so like what advice would you give to people um, Let's say even to people who are vaccinated but can't see other loved ones who aren't vaccinated, how do you navigate the fact that loneliness can cause and be caused by some of the same illnesses? <laughs> like that's such a that's such a, a frustrating paradox, you know? Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I, I think it also is important to recognize that um that social isolation is not the same thing as physical isolation. 
Um, a lot of oh, people crap. say more about that. Yeah, yeah, I will go on, go on. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm ridiculous, but, um, I feel like <laughs> cheeky. I, I do feel like, um, a lot of people assume that if you're living with someone that you're not going to be lonely, right. You know, but, sure. but the research very clearly shows there's not that strong a relationship between the extent to which mm. you're in physical proximity to people and your sense of loneliness. Yeah, and you look at New York City as a case in that, a case in point. How many people in New York City complain they don't have a boyfriend, <laughs> they don't have a girlfriend? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that uh, it's so lonely here and, and it's like everyone's packed on top of each other in in the streets, yeah. you know, um, in New York City. So, I, I think that just having a broader conceptualization of what um, what are the real factors that that decrease loneliness and, and what it really comes down to is what psychologists call high quality connections, HQCs, mm-hmm. and high quality connections have certain set of characteristics to them, um, and they can be uh, you know, can you can have a high quality connection just through like chatting with someone i almost said AI, aim chat but like that i'm so oh, yeah. i'm a dinosaur, <laughs> I'm a dinosaur. Yeah. but chatting you know like what you uh, mean like even texting or yes that's what i'm trying to say oh my gosh i got i got stuck in the <laughs> 90s my, my brain just like went to the 90s like what the hell just happened yeah. to me i'm like i suddenly couldn't think of anything yeah, like, yeah i am I've never even <laughs> you don't even know what that means do you i know yeah. what it means but i've never actually done it but anyway you do facebook messaging right but um uh, but texting texting you know um but uh there's a a certain high quality connection um has a has a characteristic set of characteristics to it which i think can apply to any kind of format it could be through zoom you know it could be Mm -hmm. through anything um and and that's a a that there's you feel like there's a reciprocal um uh connection going on that you're not I do think there's a difference between need for belonging and need for intimacy or a high quality connection. I think they're different things. Okay. I think a lot of people strive for um uh what they really want is a high quality connection, but in order to have that need met, they go through the route of belonging and acceptance. Okay, and, so can you explain what the difference is between those two? Absolutely. Well, the need for belonging is is just the need to feel accepted. Um, to uh, feel like you're part of something larger than yourself. But the thing is, you can be part of an organization. You can be part of a religion. There are all sorts of ways that people try to satisfy their need for belonging. And you can still feel deeply lonely because the second, Mm -hmm. because the point here is your whole self is not accepted. The only part of Mm -hmm. you that's accepted is the part of you that is is accepted by the group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you know what I'm yeah. saying? You could like belong. Oh, one part. Yeah, of course. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. You, and then the second that part of you, let's say, dissents or disagrees, you know, like imagine, you know, you're you're at a liberal or, or you're conservative meeting and you're like, hey, everyone, um, this other side of me, my heart is telling me that what you're all saying right now is just really not – um, the way forward here, they'd be like, you know yeah. what? You don't belong to us anymore. <laughs> right. You don't, you don't belong here. And, yeah, and, and no. you'll feel deeply, deeply lonely. The point here is that high quality connections mm-hmm. are ones you only need one research have found. You only need one or two high quality connections in your whole life to have that, to have that uh, sense of loneliness what? gone. And what we do instead is we do so many other things in our lives 
trying to satisfy that. Like fame has been found to be, that's like the number one thing people go towards thinking it'll satisfy it. And it's the yeah. thing that makes it least likely <laughs> that they'll ever satisfy it. Um, so, wow. So instead of like shooting for, Oh, maybe if I get 500 more likes on Twitter, then I won't feel so lonely. <laughs> Seek out yeah. a friend who accepts the totality of your being and in which you accept the totality of their being and text with them more frequently, maybe zoom with them. If you can't see them in person, um, Mm -hmm. uh, do whatever you can to, to make that, to deepen, deepen that relationship. That'll be much more likely to reduce loneliness than all these things we think are going to bring us, uh, not having loneliness. That's a that's a great piece of advice. I had no idea that it was that you only need one or two. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because evolutionarily, I, I, yeah. Well, if you think about it, evolutionary speaking, we we grew. You know, we were on small in the savanna desert. You know, humans were very tribal. We only had a couple people in our clan. You know, and that's mm-hmm. all we needed to not feel lonely. Now we, we live in an artificial world where there are so many potential connections and opportunities to meet people. Honestly, how many of those people do you really want to have a high quality connection with? I mean, I'm whispering this, but but honestly, <laughs> honestly, we, we we there are millions I mean, of <laughs> millions of people in New York City, you know, yeah. like most of them <laughs> you meet on the street. Careful now, Scott. Mm. Careful. <clears throat> New York City is awesome. I do love New York City. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I do love New York City. I do love New York City. I will always rep this city. <laughs> no. Major rep to NYC, for sure. <laughs> um, no, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting. The thing that you just said about fame yeah. reminds me of this other quote that I'm going to pull up now from your book, um, which I was going to ask you about, but it, it makes perfect sense with the metaphor for fame. You wrote that the quest for power in an attempt to make oneself whole always inevitably makes one want even more power. Oh, and yeah. one consequence of this is the deep irony that the most powerful people tend to be the loneliest. So I'm not saying that there's a correlation here because obviously, you know, as you grow on social media in terms of your influence, as I grow on social media in terms of mine, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm more lonely or that you're more lonely, but <laughs> it does beg the question, you know, is it possible that a lot of followers or many of the, of the people on social media with a ton of followers, millions of followers may be more susceptible to feeling lonely because in fact, it's an indicator of more power, more influence, but that might actually correlate with a greater sense of loneliness. Yes. And I would even go further. I would say that the more uh, likes you have, if you let it go to your head, the more isolated you'll feel from the rest of humanity. It it, it keeps mm. putting you more and more separated from the rest of humans, and it puts you in the situation. Uh, I'll be I'll be really uh, personal for a second, and this might sound funny, but um, I recently started doing things to really kind of start at square zero on. Like I've, I've, I'm trying to get outside my comfort zone and do new things. Yeah. Um, so one thing I've started to do recently is like stand up comedy. You know, like I've always wanted oh, cool. to, I've always wanted to do it, but yeah. but but I'm in this class with like these 20 year olds and um they don't see me as scott barry kaufman they you know they're like who is this schmuck you know and uh who's who's trying to be funny and and it's so humbling to put yourself in environments where you realize all that that's still one part of you it's not all of you yeah and you can be in any situation where 
you know, like, like you're not great overall. <laughs> no one, I mean, I'm yeah. not saying it, you, maybe you are, but, <laughs> but most humans, maybe I'm not yeah. most humans. I mean, yeah. come on, like, let's be honest. Uh, you may, you may reach stardom uh, and, and, you know, because let's say you have a good voice. So people love your voice, yeah. but put you in a different context. If you let that stuff go to your head where you're separated, you'll go into an environment where you'll feel really, uh, you'll be more prone to loneliness because you'll have this attitude yeah. of like, I'm, I'm. I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm Scott Barry Kaufman. I'm above people. Do you know how many people like, if I go on Twitter, you know, you, do you know what pow, how, how powerful it is for some of these people? They, they can literally say like the stupidest shit on Twitter and it'll get like a million <laughs> likes. That's yeah. a lot of power. That's a lot of power yeah. that if it goes to your head and you take it too seriously, that'll fuck you up. Yeah. I think, I, I, so, okay, this goes back to my question about American culture and perhaps this is more specific to American political culture, conditioning us to be outside of the being mode. I think there are elements in American political culture specifically, well, quite frankly, on the left and the right, that um, uh, fetishizes and turns power into an idol, even in the way in which people speak about these dichotomies of like oppressor versus oppressed, as if an oppressor that has material power isn't suffering from some of the very similar things, psychological entropy, et cetera, that we're just describing right now. So I think that larger context blinds us and makes us, you know, makes it more likely that we'll believe that fame and power is like the end all be all of life, instead of having it, as you describe in your book, be uh, subservient to something greater like love or beauty or truth or wisdom, et cetera. So I do, I think what you've touched on is an element that can be found in our culture, unfortunately. Yeah, you're right. Um, well, the more that our culture gets saturated with politics and, and that it becomes the mm. prominent thing, politics is all about power. Let's just mm. call spade a spade. Mm. <laughs> it Try shouldn't it. be the case. <laughs> it shouldn't be all that it's about. But I would argue that that's what it has become in our society. Mm. It's all about um, different groups fighting for different uh Power, you know, fighting for power and yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now that's not that's yeah. not what's going to advance civilization for all for all of humanity. It, it may advance civil. It may advance those groups, you know. And if yeah. those groups are perfectly content with everyone else in the world dying and just them being supreme, and you know, then okay, then maybe they've yeah. won. But that's not, you know. No, it, but even then they've lost. Right? Yeah, even yeah, then they yeah. lost. Beautiful, if they, beautiful. Because if, if you're saying that there's a relationship here between power and loneliness, yeah, right, perfect. <laughs> there's always there's always a there's always a cost that has to be paid. And so, and you find that you find that I'm working on an article right now that'll come be coming out in the Atlantic soon. Um, I haven't announced it yet, but oh, cool. whatever. But um, it's uh, be on, on the lookout, everyone. Oh, thank you. I don't know when this episode is coming out, so it's. Uh, it could Me be. Either, so, yeah. It could be out. It could be out now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But by the time they're listening to this, but it's um, it's on the latest research on uh, the effects of group narcissism, and you do find mm. that people who are group narcissists, so they they think their groups superior and demands uh, respect more than other groups. Um, those that's that's that is linked to reduced well being. It's increased. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 um it's correlated with increased levels of negative emotions in one's daily life, um and um emotional uh, regulation dis- dysfunctions and all these things that mm-hmm. I'm reviewing, and so you're right, they're not winning, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> 
even if they win yeah. in power, so, but then, they're not winning in the game of whatever. More, I think there's things in life that are more important than power. That's go. What what then it becomes the the cost of <clears throat> not only these people not winning. So we say a theory of enchantment, right? Like supremacist ways of thinking occur mm. when a person or a group of people is experiencing some kind of deep-seated insecurity mm. or like loss of belonging or you know negative feelings and instead of having the right tools to deal with that they're projecting that onto other people right mm. in order to feel secure and safe and but the the, the challenge this is such a challenge um is that not only for the people who are suffering in this way but for other people who mistakenly believe that power is everything, yeah. right? Who may be, let's say, being persecuted by those people or victimized by those people. You know, it's interesting because uh, I think it's important no to ask. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. You froze. So I talked over you. <laughs> sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to talk over you. Um, what are you trying to get power to do? You know, I think that right now, because because I want to be you know nuanced here. I think that for a lot of uh, groups and that that have significant deprivations in their life, it does make sense to want power in certain regards. If Absolutely. you're very you because you just want equality, right? You're not trying to like yeah. you're not saying I want to be better than other groups. That you're saying you're yeah. just saying can we just be at the same table? And I think yeah. that's totally reasonable and. Um, and it will ultimately lead to greater well-being. You'll you'll have greater well-being when you're at the same table <laughs> as other people. Yeah. Um, but but the kind of uh, power plays we're seeing a lot in, in, in certain uh, sections of the world and certain groups is is something different. Um, it's not just we want to get the power so that we can have the same place at the table. It's that mm. we oh. want to be recognized for our greatness. Uh, yeah, so we're, what we're seeing now is, I think, something a little bit different. It's not just, uh, and, and you are still seeing those who have real inequalities, those who um, have low power, trying to just be and 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 fight to get be at the same table as everyone else. But you're also seeing concomitantly a lot of power plays, a lot of different groups that they want something else. They want to be constant. They demand. This is what they're doing. They're demanding, um, not just respect, but they're demanding acknowledgement of their greatness yeah that's different that's group narcissism that's not healthy in group it's inflation it's inflation yeah it's like the difference between healthy you can have a healthy self-esteem where you're like i'm enough you know i'm competent i'm worthy as a human being or you can have a narcissistic self-esteem which says i'm superior to others you know, I mm. demand uh, to be uh, special privileges because of my greatness. And you're seeing mm. that now at the group level and um, all over the place. Uh, my, my, my tentative title, which I'm sure will be changed uh, by the Atlantic, is, is group narcissism is everywhere. <laughs> That's my title. Yeah. But they might, they'll probably change that into something else. But do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. When you say that, I think of, um, I'm working on this piece that unpacks some of the psychological dynamics of the nation of islam and wow. um unpack un- and just l- looking at malcolm x's life in particular but i find it so interesting because it falls into this into what you're saying what essentially happened was a people who were basically constantly told that their skin color is what made them inferior 
created a worldview, constructed a worldview out of a need to defend themselves, um, which said to them, oh, no, my skin color is not what makes me inferior. It's actually what makes me superior. So it, it's an inversion. Of, wow. It's like it was a response to say that the, the very thing that you think I am, that you hate me for is the very thing that is the very reason why God loves me. Right. And, and, and wow. this, we, we can see this across different cultures and different yeah. communities, but this is a human nature flip that we do in order to, and it's so, you know, we always talk about like the hatred and the bigotry, which is there, but we never talk enough about the tragedy and the sorrow mm. of that, mm. of that phenomenon. Um, so what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. And doesn't this, all this just come back to whether or not you're coming, you're stemming from the deprivation mode of existence or the growth mode. See, when yeah. you're, when you're insecure, when you're deeply insecure, which is what, what we have found in, in the research um, is correlated with the group narcissism. It's not grandiose narcissism. It's vulnerable narcissism, which tends to, you mm. know, the ones, there's an interesting dynamic here where in uh, narcissistic groups, the followers tend to be vulnerable narcissists and the leaders tend to be grandiose narcissists. Oh, that's And they have a codependent relationship. <laughs> oh, well, wow. When, yeah, what, I'm going to have to review what you wrote, wrote about the difference between yeah. grandiose yeah. narcissism and vulnerable narcissism. Because, yeah, that's so... Yeah, that's so interesting. Because now you're getting on a on a you're 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 breaking it down on a like micro level, even within an organization. That's that's cool. <laughs> yeah, and you start seeing it everywhere. You know, once you once you like mm-hmm. realize that's what's going on, you see it. You see it in like some of these like really big followers on Twitter. You see all their sycophants. You know, yeah. Um, who like if anyone comes from outside and criticizes that person, they're like, don't touch Ben. Sh-. You know, like Ben Shapiro has like all these sycophants, right? <laughs> like if I'm just like, yeah. if I go on, I'm like, hey, Ben, uh, love, 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 what, love what you're up to. Just didn't really think that that point you made really is backed by science. And I just wanted to yeah. give you a study. That's all. That's all. Uh, have a great day. Yeah. <laughs> His sycophants yeah. will be like, you're yeah, liberal yeah. snowflake. They're like, how dare you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's not a healthy relationship between that person and yeah. Ben Shapiro. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. By the way, this is a total invitation to Ben to come on the pod. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening to this. Yeah. This is no shade. This is <laughs> Let's more. Let's talk sh- about it, Ben. Let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah. This is more shade against Ben's followers than Ben. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. Well, we are almost out of time. So I'm going to let you have the last word. Any final oh, advice, wow. words of wisdom that you can send to our listeners to help them on the way to becoming more actualized and transcending themselves and entering into the being mode? Yeah, I would say that um, it, it's easier to default to the deprivation mode of human existence. It's very easy for everything to stem from that. But I think the thing that humans evolved is this capacity to override that and to intentionally steer our mind in the direction of the growth of our highest self and um, our best self and, 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 and surround ourselves with the people and environments to the extent that we can that are more likely to get us into that mode of human existence. And I just want people to even just be aware of that so they can try to practice it more in their lives. Yeah. Awesome, Scott. Well, the book is called Transcend, The Science of Self-Actualization. It is awesome. Thanks, um, any other websites that you want to or yes. your social media accounts that you want to plug. <laughs> yes, the psychology podcast that which you've been on. Um uh, have, November eleventh, yeah. we're doing a big relaunch uh with Stitcher, uh, which is a, a major podcast network. And we're going to 
take the podcast to the next level. So uh, if you enjoy this kind of discussion, you'll probably enjoy the kinds of discussions I have on that podcast as well. Beautiful. Everyone check that out. What's your Twitter handle? SB Kaufman. Awesome. Yeah. Follow yeah. Scott on Twitter. Or Insta. Listen to his podcast. Or, or, in, Insta, or Insta. Or Insta. Scott Insta Barry Kaufman. What? At Scott Barry Kaufman. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. We'll Thanks. try to plug those uh, handles in, in the description. Um, other than that, thank you, Scott, for being an excellent guest, conversation partner, and coming on the Heart Speaks podcast with yours truly. Thank you. Loved it. Thank you.